When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as France breaks away from the West's policy of nuclear ambiguity in response to Putin's threats, we discuss the latest developments in Ukraine and beyond. Plus, you'll hear an interview with Admiral Sir Tony Radekin, Chief of the Defence Staff for the UK. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 14th of October, day 233. And today I'm joined by senior reporter Roland Oliphant on the ground in Ukraine and Hamish de Breton Gordon, who has been covering nuclear tensions between Russia and the West for The Telegraph. I started off by asking Roland for military developments of the last 24 hours. What's going on on the battlefield? Well, if we kind of um, look at the map, look at the south, Kherson, quite interesting. So Vladimir Saldo, who is the kind of Russian-installed official who runs that place, the occupation authority there, has appealed to Moscow for an evacuation of civilians, indicating that um, the Russians are very worried about their position there and interestingly the ft had a uh, had a comment last night from some western officials saying they think that actually um, the ukrainians might be able to take that place within a week which is perhaps quicker than we expected so this this sense that the the ukrainian that long-term pressure on herson is, is has really built up and the russians might finally be a, about to crack or maybe even that uh, they they finally kind of listen to military reality and and the fact that it's, it's incredibly difficult to maintain and costly to maintain this bridgehead on the other side of Dnipro, um, perhaps that has finally prevailed over the political imperative um, and they're preparing to, to pull back. So signs of massive Russian pressure there. Ukrainians saying they're also pushing forward still in the Kharkiv region. They're, they're, they're still pushing forward towards uh, Sviatova. That's that, that key town, that next key town over in Luhansk. So more more Ukrainian advances there. And then in Donbass, quite interesting. So in Bakhmut, which we were talking about just the other day, the British Ministry of Defence says in its um, daily uh, intelligence update that over the past three days, 
Um, so I suppose that's since Wednesday. Pro-Russian forces have made tactical advances towards the centre of the city. Now, they say that the the Russians, um, which which may involve the uh, troops from the so-called Luhansk People's Republic, but we largely think consist of mercenaries from the Wagner military company, have made it to these two villages, kind of outlying suburbs on the southern edge of that town called Opitnia and Ivangrad. Now, We've just tried to, or I've just tried to call um, a contact in Bakhmut. He's not picking up at the moment. Um, the fog of war is often very difficult to get through to people kind of near the front lines because of the you know, communication problems and mobile phone signal goes down and so on and so forth. I was told when I was in Bakhmut just the other day that the Russians had done exactly that last week and were pushed back from those two villages last weekend. So around Saturday or Sunday, there was a big fight. Um, now, if this report is not a late report of that incident, then it's another indication of the seesaw battle for Bakhmut. I mean, the, the Brits make this point that the Russians are enjoying advances around there, slow ones, but they are moving forward. But, but, but as they note, um, the Russian effort there is kind of seriously undermined by everything that's going on on the flanks. And by the flanks, they mean um, up in Kharkiv, down in her son. So as yet, still quite a bit of fog of war down around there, but but it's clear the Russians are are not letting up on this immense effort um, they've been putting in to try to get into Bakhmut. You, you mentioned a bit there about what you've been doing yourself on the ground, but can you uh, describe where you are, who you've been speaking to, and what you've been up to since we last spoke? Well, <laughs> I, was just, I was just speaking yesterday. Um, I was down in Zaporizhia yesterday, kind of talking to people about the, um, well, about two things, about the, you know, the aftermath of the, um, the, the big strikes that have hit that city recently and also people coming across the border. Um, today is a writing day, so I've been, I've been writing up notes about two things, two things on my mind. One, one is from... You know, my conversations in, in, in Zaporizhia yesterday, we ran into the um, the guy who runs the training center for the local emergency situations um, agency uh, down there. Um, he was in the process of swearing in or, or giving a very quick training to a bunch of about 15 volunteers. So these are, are local guys who, who have signed up um, on a website uh where you say, look, I'm I'm free um, to be on call if you need me um, to do some work. So so these were factory workers, office workers, um, pure civilians, no experience of being a fireman or any anything else like that, um, but but volunteering to help out. Um, I was just quite interesting, kind of listening listening to the briefing. Um, you know, some some of it's kind of basic safety stuff, kind of like look. Um, you know, you need a sturdy pair of shoes, never sharpen a t-shirt, you need long sleeves for this kind of work. Um, so, um, the job is basically that they were basically being told, look, um, we're not going to use you to do the dangerous stuff. Um, the professionals are going to do that, that, you know, it will be, it will be the, um, trained firemen and rescuers who will be straight into the rubble after a bombing to try and get people out. Um, people who know how to safely move um, rubble, but know how to safely treat casualties. Um, you guys are going to have the safer job, but you're also going to have the most brack breaking job, which is going to be 
kind of heavy lifting, practically sifting through the aftermath of a strike um, to find survivors any or, or bodies, anything that, that, that has been missed by the first responders, by the very first first responders, but also to gather kind of evidence, um, things that will help identify bodies. Um, so, you know, he was talking about things like, look, and what you are looking for are documents, anything with a photograph on and a name on it. Um, and they already had a big pile of, of you know, bits of paper, um, the kind of thing that, you know, you have in your house, right? You know, it could be your, you know, title deeds, rental agreements, um, driving licenses, things like that. And, and that that helps you identify victims. It helps you identify, you know, if the, if the owner of the flat was absent, um, things like that. Um, and then he he made a big point to these guys, look, um, if you come across a body um there is no way of knowing how you're going to react um so where when you when you're going in there and we're asking you to pick up the bricks and and, and sift through just be aware you come across a dead body let us know we'll get it out but then if you need to take yourself off sit on the bench have a smoke maybe you'll want to come back and work maybe you'll call it a day um, that's fine. So he had a very big emphasis on the kind of the, the psychological heavy lifting um, of the war. And then his final point was, was I, I thought, quite um, quite poetic, really. He said, look, um, it, it happens. Um, we do have evidence, you know, looting happens at bomber sites. All right. People try and get into shops. People, you know, see, oh, that's a nice thing. No one needs that. I'll, I think I'll pocket that. Um, and he said to these volunteers, look, the fact you're volunteers tells me you've probably got, you know, kind of higher moral standards than most people. Um, so I don't think you're going to do this. But, but you know, my, my best deterrent for this, if we catch you, you're in trouble, by the way, and we'll call the police um, if, if you do do this. But um, his main kind of deterrent against this kind of behavior was, look, don't bring bad karma on yourself. Um, if you take something from a bomb site, um, that is going to bring you bad luck. Um and he insisted there have been cases of people taking taking things from bomb sites who then end up getting bombed themselves. Um, so it was quite quite an interesting speech. Very motivated, um, interesting people, and a nice uh, just a nice kind of insight into this this incredible kind of volunteer movement. Um, this this spirit of mobilisation that that characterises um, Ukraine's um, wartime society. The other thing. Um, I'm kind of writing up is it's about the Sviatohersk um, monastery. So up in Sviatohersk in Donbass, there is a this this very well. It's actually not that ancient, actually, thanks to the Soviet Union and other other little historical things. Anyway, it's a very famous monastery um, up on the the Siversky Donetsk. And during the battle for Donbass, it became the front line because the Russians were on one side of the river, the Ukrainians were on the other. Um, and this monastery, which sits at a picturesque point on the on on the on the river itself, um, became got quite badly shot up, essentially, because it, it was literally um, in between two sides. So fascinating, fascinating little bit of history about about the Donbass and the the history of orthodoxy um, in this region. I was shown around by a monk who told me. Um, very interestingly, he said, look, the, the first evidence of monasteries in this part of the world actually goes back to the ninth century or something. And it's something to do with a some kind of schism in Byzantium, you know, in the year 900 or something, which sent 
you know, sent a wave of people kind of fleeing from Byzantium to the very outer edges of the empire. So you ended up people in Italy, people in Sicily, people in Crimea, and and, and up into the uh, the Don River Basin. Um, and today, of course, there there are there are all kinds of all kinds of questions uh, bound up with things like loyalty and so on, because this this monastery is technically under the Moscow Patriarchate, um, and I won't bore our listeners with the with the great details and the subtleties of which patriarchate you you are affiliated with. But but suffice to say, um, if you are a Ukrainian church that is still affiliated with the Moscow Patriarchate, um, there are definitely there, there there are suspicions directed at you. Um, so those are the kind of things um, in my notebook at the, at the moment, um, and I hope you'll be reading about it, you know, in the next in the next week or so in the paper. Thanks for that, Roland. Hamish, if I can come to you next, I know that you've written extensively for the Telegraph on nuclear tensions throughout this conflict. What can you tell us about the latest developments in this sphere? Well, I think I think the the most immediate thing is what President Macron. Uh, what was saying yesterday that um, the French uh, would not respond with a nuclear, with one of their nuclear weapons, if uh, Putin used a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, which I find absolutely staggering. Um, the nuclear confrontation ha- has been increasing uh, over the last uh, few weeks, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, I think to start with, I, I don't think there is any prospect of sort of Armageddon, as Biden was calling it last week, global nuclear war. There are too many checks and balances in place that uh, uh, Putin couldn't start or couldn't press his red button on a whim. But the way that the nuclear peace has been controlled for the last 75 years and, you know, has kept world peace is through what we call strategic ambiguity. In other words, you know, we don't tell Putin exactly how we're going to react. Now, That's exactly what Macron has done. I mean, you could argue that the French have removed their nuclear capability from this um, global peace. And you could argue that the balance of nuclear capability is now resting with the Russians. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily go along with that. But, you know, a unified front with ourselves, the Americans and the French is really the way of strength that has kept nuclear out of the peace um, hitherto. My writings in the Telegraph over the last two weeks, I've been saying we need to call Putin's bluff and we need to be proactive. I think the West has, for a lot of reasons, has had to be very reactive to, what, to what's happened in Ukraine. Uh, and when I say proactive, I, you know, we, we need to, to use the bomb disposal vernacular, um, stay left of the bomb, prevent it going off. But, um, you know, what Macron has said is making that more difficult. And, you know, I, I really sympathise with the frustration of Ben Wallace, the defence minister, who has reiterated after Macron's comments that absolutely, you know, we will act in the most determined way if, if a nuclear uh, event happens um, in Ukraine. And I think Mr Macron, you know, maybe he is not getting a full briefing because, you know, if there is a tactical nuclear weapon and some of my fellow experts sort of saying these are small nuclear weapons. Well, they might be small nuclear weapons. The the Russian tactical nuclear weapons are still 10 to 15 kilotons. That is the same size, if not bigger, than the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War. 
And the radiation from the last meteorological data I have seen has it all going west. And, and you know, a good deal of it could, could well, might well fall in France. So absolutely, it would have an impact on France. So I think this is, uh, and one adds it, I know you, you've been talking about General Svayakin uh, early on in the week. This is uh, the butcher of Syria, um, who I saw at very close quarters in Syria. And he developed this unconventional warfare where you attack the civilian population, predominantly schools and hospitals. And only today the WHO have mentioned that 500 medical facilities have already been attacked um, in Ukraine. Now, this fellow also allowed Assad and the Syrians to use chemical weapons um, in his time in Syria. And they were hugely effective. So when it comes to unconventional warfare, and the threats to use nuclear weapons and the threat to also destroy the Ukraine grid, the Ukraine electricity supply, which the vast majority comes from nuclear. Um, I think we then need to be absolutely certain that um, if we accept that Putin's conventional forces are on the retreat, uh, and I think head of GCHQ said that earlier on the week, then the unconventional will take over and if Savarkin has his way, that might well include, you know, the weaponization of power stations, um, you know, the possible use of tactical nuclear weapons. So we need to do all that we can. And just to finish off this piece, I think on the proactive side, um, and I note that um, Joseph Bassell, the uh, EU's policy chief, has said that, you know, the West could annihilate the Russian army conventionally, which, which I absolutely agree with. But I would like to go further and say, you know, if Russia looks as though it's going to use its tactical nukes, and we will probably get 24 to 48 hours notice because they will have to be moved into a place where they could affect Ukraine, that the West would prevent them being used. In other words, take them out with precision guided missiles. And to me, it'd be much more helpful if Macron had said that rather than we're just not going to use our nuclear uh, weapons. So I think those are the the most significant. And I know you've also talked about uh, Putin claiming World War Three if Ukraine is brought into NATO. Again, I think as part of our our brinkmanship, if you like, we we need to keep that on the table that we can uh, force uh, Putin into backing off and, you know, ultimately ending this war as soon as possible. Going back to your comments on Macron, could you explain for our listeners why we're seeing Macron break away from the rest of the West in terms of the policy on ambiguity to Russia's nuclear threats? Well, that, that, that is a really good question. And that's a question I, I would like to know. I, you know, I, I presume he is talking to a different audience, in other words, you know, not to the international community and not to the Russians. Now, I am sure what he has said, and he he has reiterated France's nuclear policy that they would only use nuclear weapons if France was directly targeted by nuclear weapons. Now, that is, again, I'm, I find it staggering. I mean, Macron is obviously a hugely intelligent and talented person. But to articulate so clearly that his nuclear uh, weapons would not be used in the scenario that we're talking about in Ukraine seems to be very, very narrow minded and naive because, you know, any nuclear 
uh, activity in Ukraine is going to directly affect France. You know, I've said about fallout, but also, you know, obviously, if if ourselves and the, uh, and the Americans um, retaliate, then that is going to bring things into escalation. I, and that's why I'm worried slightly about the balance. Now, you know, I, I, I assume that Macron and Biden and Trust speak all the time. You know, I know that, you know, sadly, it seems that our leaders, certainly in this country, are focused on other things, which, quite frankly, however important they are, they're not as important as this issue. If we get this wrong, quite frankly, all our other ills are horrifically irrelevant. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on nuclear doctrine. I mean, as, as I understand, um, in, in a very narrow sense, you know, Macron is simply restating um, well-established French nuclear doctrine, which is that, you, you know, the nukes are there only for for responding to a threat against France itself, you know, which, you know, I, I suppose goes back to like, well, we're not, we're not going to be occupied by the Germans again. Um, that's basically what, what, what we have the bombs for. Um, I'm interested in Hamish. Is that, I mean, it seems to me like you're saying that, are you basically saying that those doctrines, those long held doctrines are just not up to purpose now? Because, because, um, on the one hand, I couldn't really fault Macron for saying, well, listen, this is, this is always how what, what the attitude has been with the bomb in France, and no, I'm not making up nuclear doctrine on the hoof in an interview. Um, are you saying that's just not good enough and that's not fit for purpose, and maybe our own isn't as well? The other thing is, I mean, is it, it sounds to me like you're probably not that happy, I mean, with the Western response in general to this thing. So I've, I've been having um, like text messages from friends, right? So I've got this friend, not journalist, not 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 an expert just you know a kind of concerned citizen uh, just just literally a friend saying look i don't understand why biden has not publicly said to to mr putin like if you nuke ukraine that's it you're dead and it's that simple um because as he understands it um you know my mate um that's how deterrence is meant to work so why aren't we singling that 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 message so strongly. I mean, we, we've had these recent comments. Um, you referred to them, you know, just the other day, um, saying, "Look, we'll, you know, Russia's army will be obliterated by conventional means if this happens." Um, but it seems to me like it's, you know, it's been pretty ambiguous up to this point, right? I mean, I mean, do you, do you think the West in general has been too ambiguous um, in in sending that strong deterrent message? Roland, I, I do absolutely, and and that was very much the theme of. Of, of the piece that I did the other day. I, th- I think there, there can be no ambiguity here. And I think that's, that's why perhaps, you know, Putin, the singular person who seems to have singular control, maybe it's rather easier for him. But I, I hope Biden, and we understand that Biden did, has had private discussions with the Kremlin and Putin. And I hope he said absolutely that, um, you know, you use nuclear weapons and, and you are over. I do... Um, I agree with the EU and I agree with others. We should have an overwhelming conventional response um, if there is the, the, the sniff of nuclear weapons being used. And that's why when I say proactive, um, I, I want Truss and Biden to tell Putin that the minute he fires up those Iskander missile launchers or moves uh, tactical nuclear bombs to aircraft, we will take them out. Now, we have the, the technology and the intelligence to do that. So some would say, well, that's part of the strategic ambiguity. I, don't, I think we're, we're sort of beyond that now. Um, 
the 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 nuclear the strategic nuclear piece is is as I said at the beginning, I just don't think it's going to happen. But the absolute articulation that Putin is is over um, if he. If, if he stretches to nuclear weapons, and and I do, do you know, I don't want to get into the chemical piece, but you know, I, I think um, the chemical weapons are so successful in Syria, and of course, you know, part of the problem uh, again, which I've written about, is because of the Obama red line disappeared in 2013 with the massive use of sarin. Um, that to me emboldened um, Putin. And, and probably emboldened him, you know, to get involved in Ukraine in the first place. Because he, he, there is an assumption which I tend to agree with that the Russians think that, um, you know, they, that NATO wouldn't react when they involved got involved in Ukraine. They're slightly surprised that we did, and and we've given, you know, so much support to Ukrainians. But I still think, and it's not helped by what Macron said yesterday, that the Russians do not think that we will you know, respond if they use a tactical nuclear weapon, because we didn't respond when they use chemical weapons, which, you know, a lot of people call a poor, poor person's nuclear weapon. And, and because they were so morbidly brilliant and effective in Syria, you know, if you accept the premise that Putin thinks that he, he can't lose, you know, if he loses in Ukraine, he's over. Um, you know, it might well be that that he will prepare to take that risk on the premise that we won't respond. And uh, as you know, I don't want to bang on about Savarkin, but um, you know, his unconventional warfare that he developed and tried and tested uh, in Syria was tremendously effective. So, yeah, a very long answer to your question, um, Roland. I think we need to make absolutely sure that Putin understands that we, the US. The UK and France and NATO will respond overwhelmingly and it will be the end of Putin and the end of his army and humiliation. And one would hope that would be something that will, you know, trigger with the Russian people who, you know, for us people outside Russia, we're, you know, I'm sure everybody is absolutely staggered that the Russian people aren't, you know, rising up as 300,000 of them have been coerced to the front with a day's training and a, and given a rifle um, in some sort of First World War type um, over the top. And I'm sure they'll be slaughtered. I'm staggered that the Russian people are not sort of starting to think, right, you know, this is the time to get rid of this this tyrant. Um, but uh, we need to make sure that, that Putin understands that. Thank you for those thoughts, Hamish. I'd like to start with you, Roland, if you have any final thoughts for our listeners. Um, I, I've got two thoughts, and really they're, they're probably things that um, I should have mentioned earlier. Um, the first thing is look, th- this question of, of prisoners of war. So the International Committee of the Red Cross have now said um, they're really going to push um, to get access to this um, prisoner of war camp um, in Alenovka. That's a town in uh, the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, um, so occupied Donetsk region, where um, a large number of Azov regiment prisoners who'd fought at Azov style died in a mysterious fire um, a couple of months ago. Um, the the Russians claimed that that was um, Ukrainian artillery fire, um, but the the open source evidence and the Ukrainian government insists that this was basically murder. That that um, the Russians deliberately fired a, um, a thermobaric weapon into that barracks, um, and they have been demanding 
um, in quite forthright terms um, that the that the ICRC do its job. I mean, um, and there's and this is the reason I raise it is because I think this is a theme that has been building. There's been a sense in Ukraine um, that the Red Cross hasn't been being the Red Cross. I mean, you remember, you know, think of the Second World War films and, you know, prisoners of war, they always get a Red Cross pass and there's always the Red Cross inspecting the prison camps and so on and so forth. That was the role traditionally that the Red Cross is meant to play as this neutral arbiter that gets access to prisons and, look, you know, kind of, you know, inspects or polices the enforcement of the Geneva Convention. Um, and that's the kind of expectation lots of people have. Ukrainians feel like they just have not been delivering that and that they've been massively ineffective um, so far. So, it will be interesting to see um, what happens there going forward. I, I, I would keep an eye on that, and I'd be very interested in, in, in whatever the I, ICRC have to say if they do get access to that penal facility. Um, and the other thing to keep an eye on is Belarus. Um, so Lukashenko um, has given an, an interview to NBC um, where, once again, he's raised the nuclear issue. He said, look, uh, there is a reason that Russia has nuclear weapons. Um, don't push them into a corner. So, on, you know, he's kind of repeating um, the Russian message. But look, th- th- there's funny things going on in Belarus. Um, this morning or, or late last night, they announced a, a, a so-called counter-terrorist operation. Um, this has come uh, as there were also reports unconfirmed as yet, but from pretty reliable independent Russian, uh, sorry, Belarusian news sources that they're planning a mobilization by stealth. So Belarusian men um, can expect to get called up. Um, and the the very unpleasant implication of all of this is that Belarus is preparing to enter the war on the Russian side. They've, they've allowed the Russians to use their territory to attack Ukraine since the very beginning. Um, to actually see Belarus enter the war as a combatant and send its army across the border um, would be dramatic. I mean, obviously, a, you know, bad news for Ukraine, although their northern border is pretty well defended. Um, but look, Alexander Lukashenko um, is incredibly adept at kind of being more useful to Putin um, alive than than out of power, and yet avoiding doing things that Putin really wants him to do, which Lukashenko knows are um, political suicide. Um, and one of those things is joining this war. He's been, he's, he's absolute, an absolute master at this game of kind of playing off the Kremlin. Um, but there will come a day, there could well come a day where he runs out of road, where suddenly he hasn't got a choice and Putin says, look, no more playing around, you're doing it. Um, and the fear is that that day is fast approaching. We don't yet know if it will do. Um, there's a big difference between Alexander Lukashenko's rhetoric, which is also always quite fiery, and what he actually does. Um, so I wouldn't jump to conclusions, but it is worth keeping an eye on Ukraine's northern border. Thank you, Roland. Over to you, Hamish. Do you have any closing thoughts to leave our listeners with? Yes, ju- just a couple. And um, uh, as I said earlier, you know, I've I think the West needs to be more proactive. And, you know, to Roland's point about Belarus, you know, we, we should be telling Belarus absolutely in no uncertain terms, you need to stay out of this. Otherwise, you know, once this is over and it will be over and Ukraine will prevail, then Lukashenko will be out of a job. So leaning on him in that, that respect. O- on the other side of it, really along the same sort of theme, I hope that the Prime Minister, once she has sorted out her financial woes today, gets fully behind Ben Wallace 
and uh, make sure that all our focus and effort goes into, number one, preventing any nuclear use in Ukraine, which will spill over if it's, if it's done. Uh, and I suppose it, the final thing, I know a lot of people are absolutely terrified about the whole nuclear piece, but I will reiterate, which a number of other people have said as well, you know, I think it is very, very unlikely that we will have a strategic nuclear conflict. But even a tactical conflict, nuclear conflict in Ukraine will affect all of us in Europe. And Prime Minister, the West, UK, uh, France and US must be entirely unified to make sure that this does not happen. As you heard at the top of this episode, The Telegraph's defence editor Daniel Sheridan got to go aboard the HMS Elizabeth with Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, one of the British military's most senior figures. Here, they discuss Nord Stream 2 sabotage and if the war will head to space. meeting me on board HMS Queen Elizabeth. I think we've both got our breath back having walked up how many flights of stairs? I don't know, I lost count, but I, I, I need the exercise. So, uh, so it's very good to be on board uh, and, and, and great to be spending a bit of time with you. I understand this is your first time in New York as Chief of the Defence Staff. Why is it important to be sharing a presence here in New York? We're here in HMS Queen Elizabeth for the Atlantic Future Forum. And that's a forum that's been going now for several years where the UK and US come together as part of a conference with industry, with technology experts, with strategists, with academics, with political leaders, with military leaders, in order to see how we can have an even stronger relationship in tackling some of the biggest defence and security challenges in the world. And this is a, an incredibly important conversation it is very special to have such a strong ally in the United States and we want to challenge ourselves so that we reach out to some of the other areas, some of the smaller companies, some of the startups, some of the, the real leaders and disruptors who, who might have some extra capabilities that allow us to have an operational advantage over our potential enemies and allow us to keep our publics and nations even safer. And you talked about some of the biggest threats right now. Are we talking about Russia? Can you tell me what's going on in Ukraine right now? Absolutely, in terms of Russia, last year's integration review described Russia as an acute threat. And we've actually seen an acceleration of that in the way that Russia has manifested its willingness to use physical violence to achieve its political aims. And that's what we have to be able to respond to, and that's the dominant threat for the UK. And when you look at this through a US lens, we also share concerns about violent extremism and the, the, the classic terrorism and non-state actors. We have concerns about some of the threats that Iran and North Korea potentially provide. For the US, they use slightly different language in seeing China as a threat and the UK seeing China as a competitor. But we have a shared interest because of our trade, our security, our shared values, that we look to work together throughout the world. And that means we, as you saw last year and as you're seeing at the moment, 
that's the tilt that was described in last year's integrated review and the UK having a more prominent relationship in the Indo-Pacific. We don't know at this stage that Russia is responsible for those gas leaks on the, on the Nord Stream mm -hmm. pipeline and an investigation has to take place. And I mentioned that because people should be assured that when we come out and say country X did this, we do it with a high degree of evidence and having done a proper investigation and an assuredness that when we, t when we say those comments, which are incredibly important and loaded, that people will believe us. So we don't, we don't have rash responses to events. Those investigations are going on. We're seeing Russia failing in its objectives in Ukraine. And by that I mean a Russia that invaded Ukraine and initially sought to take 70% of, of, of the territory of Ukraine was its ambition subjugate the Ukrainian population, create fissures in NATO and to cower the West. And the opposite has happened. They've been defeated in the cities. They're not going to subjugate the Ukrainian population. They've had to change their tactics and they're struggling to hold on to some of the ground, the modest amount of ground that they, they gained for an enormous expense, both people being killed and people being injured, but also what we would say using up almost half of the combat effectiveness of their army. And then at the strategic level, you're seeing a stronger NATO. You're seeing NATO with new partners joining in terms of Finland and Sweden. And then you're seeing these bigger issues, a diplomatic response, initially 141 nations at the United Nations um, deploring Russia invading Ukraine. You're seeing countries adjusting their energy policies so that they will buy less energy from Russia this year and they will look to wean themselves off Russian energy over future years. That's important because the battle lines are not just on the physical territory in Ukraine. This is a competition that's going on for the security of the Euro-Atlantic. This is a competition going on of a challenge to the world order and that's why it's important that nations come together and these fundamentals and principles that we protect nations from being invaded, we support nations to determine their own futures, we protect our nations in a collective way, whether that's through NATO or it's through other partnerships, and that extends beyond this narrow security defence space. It's economic, it's diplomatic, it's also in the information space. That is absolutely necessary because Russia is not just drawing a battle line, you're seeing it using energy to, to, to create pressure on the West. You saw the way that they stifled Ukraine being able to export grain and the impact that that has. And that's why the West has to come back and almost in a, a 360 degree way, be responsive enough to be able to combat these pressures. And when the world comes together, and when these powerful nations come together, and when we have the confidence and we, we have the resolve that our politicians, I think, have been very clear in seeking to establish, that helps these brave people in Ukraine to fight for their country. And it means that President Putin's ambitions will fail and that's why you're seeing the weakness in the Russian plans and how they're being defeated I would argue in every, every one of those domains. So a failing Russia does that not become more desperate in which case might it target things like undersea cables which we really rely on for comms and just the way the world rotates 
I mean, how would that impact us? And do we have plans in place to protect our critical national infrastructure if Russia were to go for undersea cables? Russia has the ability to disrupt in other areas in addition to what it's doing in Ukraine, what it's doing in, in energy, what it's doing in these diplomatic and information battles. It has capabilities in space. You saw an example of that at the tail end of last year when Russia exploded an object in space which created immense debris. Russia has nuclear capabilities, Russia has underwater capabilities. And you're right to highlight that the world's information, the majority of it, and it's a vast majority, over 90%, over 95%, goes around the world on these undersea cables. But where I would offer some caution and reassurance is even if you take out one cable, there are networks that allow you to then re-establish the information flow and it can go around other, other cables. We monitor Russian activity. We, I don't want to go into to the detail because some of it is very sensitive in terms of how we might be able to combat that. But the dilemma that Russia faces when you talk about its desperation, it's created this dilemma and the dilemma will continue until Russia restricts its activity and then Russia can get to a much more stable and safer place. When people kind of jump to Russia's going to do A, B and C, again, I would offer caution. Russia was defeated in its ambition with the cities and it reoriented its plans. It was defeated in its ambition to take a lot of territory. It focused on the east and it focused on the south. It was ejected off Snake Island. It was ejected off some of the oil rigs. It had its capital ship sunk in the Black Sea. It's had a series of attacks in Crimea. Those are impactful defeats on Russia. But if you take the cities or if you take the ambition to subjugate the whole Ukrainian population, what you actually see is a Russia that changes its tactics, consolidates, then adjusts its timeline. So President Putin has said, right, his ambitions still remain the same, but it might be over a longer period of time. That's what's actually happening. It's not right. Russia now, you know, rushes to, to, to do something hideous over here. It's doing some hideous things inside Ukraine. And we have to have some confidence about our own abilities to protect our populations, our own abilities to respond, and the even deeper dilemma that Russia can get into when it escalates in certain areas. Because Russia does not want a nuclear war. Russia does not want a war with NATO. Russia doesn't want to strengthen the international resolve even more strongly than it already is because that creates even bigger problems for Russia in the here and now. And so there are limiters to why Russia might not act in a particular way. And, 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 and that's not to deny that Russia could act, but then when you play it out, we've got to be really confident that Russia doesn't have some magic jokers or cards. When it plays those cards down, that we have a number of responses to those, and Russia knows that. We may not, we don't share the rationality of President Putin, but he is behaving in a rational way for President Putin, rather than an irrational actor who is doing things that seem hopelessly reckless and unpredictable. What makes you say that Putin is acting in a rational way? I only say he's acting in a rational way for President Putin. So when you align his ambitions, his philosophy, his ideology, he's following his 
perspective on the world, and it's not a rationality that we share, it's not totally random and reckless, and therefore he, he, he responds, or he's constrained in what he can do because of the way that we can respond and the way that Ukraine is fighting. And he doesn't want to strengthen the international resolve. He doesn't want to strengthen the international response because it, he, he, he's, he's had a point of weakness for his ambitions. He's got to try and find ways that allow him to succeed. Now, one of those could be he, he, he takes a much longer time. And I'm just cautioning about some of the, 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 the sort of spectacular things that are talked about as if somehow that those can happen without consequence. What is your opinion on nuclear war and whether this could be the next step? I think we've got to be very careful talking about nuclear war. Even the talking about it somehow normalises it. And where I think the international community has been very clear and very sensible is calling out reckless language by Russia, not responding to, to reckless rhetoric and then having in systems in place that allow us to, to monitor the whole time, to try and analyse what is rhetoric, what is real. And then you have other systems in place in your ability to respond to a range of contingencies, which I, I wouldn't want to go into, but it's just to, I don't think it should be a surprise to anybody that we have a range of contingency planning for a whole series of eventualities. And then you come all the way back to the UK being a nuclear power and being a nuclear power within a nuclear alliance called NATO and with other partners like America and France and that is a phenomenally strong and confident position to be in and that is the way you deter and constrain others and you protect and reassure your own population. If you look at what what is actually going on in the war in Ukraine and I don't mean this in a, in a, in a callous way, it's a, it's, a, it's a despicable, horrible war. And I've been to Ukraine several times. And the bravery of the Ukraine population and the courage of the Ukrainian armed forces is magnificent, but it's also relatively contained. It's happening in a particular part of Europe. It's at the majority of the violence is, is happening in the east and the south. And you haven't seen, you know, some of some of the commentators sort of in, in the very early days seeing that this was going to spread to, uh, to X, to B, this was going to lead to so and so. Those things haven't happened. There are reasons why they won't happen. And that's why talk of the spectre of nuclear war, talk of that this is going to escalate into an even bigger war with other nations involved are not ones that we that that we recognize as being as being likely at, at at this at this time. I think I've been cautiously optimistic all the way through and that's a product of seeing how Ukraine responded at the very outset, seeing the calamitous way that Russia has prosecuted this war, seeing the international response, seeing the way that Ukraine has been able to shift its tactics, embrace western armaments then put them to use. Then you're seeing the pressure emerge on Russia. So you saw that with some of the ground that Russia lost around Kharkiv and in the northeast. You've seen it with a Russian mobilization, which sounds like a very large number. But I think for any professional military person, 
the notion that you create an army of 300,000 and people have two or three days training and they're conscript or compelled, that doesn't feel like that's going to be an effective fighting force and it definitely doesn't look like it's going to be an effective fighting force against a Ukrainian army that is fighting with all the spirit and determination and confidence when they're fighting for their land, for their futures. And, and some of these conscripts from Russia, we know don't, don't even know where they're going, what they're fighting for. And, and it's shocking in both a moral and a professional sense when they're being told to, to buy their own bandages or buy their own clothes in order to be able to sustain uh, a difficult winter. That is not the way to impose a threat or a fear in the Ukrainian armed forces. It's a weak reaction. It's a manifestation of the pressure that Russia is under. And even the mobilization is a partial mobilization because we think it would be very difficult for President Putin to go for full mobilization because from the very outset he's always said that this is not a war, this is a special type of operation and, and, and it's relatively modest and to his own population they don't need to worry about it and so on. So, and again it's, it's part of that calamitous nature and the way that Russia has gone about this. And the answer is for Russia to acknowledge the mistakes that it's been making and to, 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 to withdraw from the territory they seized and then to get onto a better path for, for its own future. You've spoken a lot about confidence earlier. So is it fair to say that you're confident if Russia did target undersea infrastructure, we would be in a position to protect ourselves? Yes, but there are a series of systems and approaches that enable us to do it, but I with other nations recognise that we have to get much stronger in being able to protect those undersea cables, that undersea infrastructure, some other parts of our national, what we call critical national infrastructure. And that's why you're seeing a debate about additional investment in defence and where might some of that investment go. So some of it might be into our stockpiles, some of it is for some of the lessons learned, some of it is to reflect on a more aggressive Russia, some of it is to reflect our partnership with America and, and potentially to strengthen the Indo-Pacific tilt. I think as Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has said, Let's not speculate too much on what the particular programmes might be. But the really significant element here is the announcement by the government that defence spending will be 3% by 2030. That is a phenomenal increase. It's a 50% increase in the defence budget and obviously a, 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 a difficult time for the nation in terms of other spending commitments. And my responsibility and the responsibility of the other chiefs is to get the most out of the money that we've currently got and the additional investment that the government provided last year, an extra 24 billion, and to maximise the impact of any further additional investment so that we keep our nation safe and we contribute to these broader goals that the government has in terms of trade and prosperity. Do you want to see more of that 3% spent on critical infrastructure and the protection of it? We have to do the work to see precisely where the programmes are. The mood music at the moment is that it's, we're already spending more money. The Navy have just bought a ship that's dedicated to that particular role. Other nations within NATO are buying dedicated capabilities for that role to be able to get down deeper, to both monitor and be able to 
tackle some of the threats that, that exist uh, in, in the deep ocean with those cables. So those things are happening. We need to stack everything up and with other competing demands and then see, right, how much yeah, is, is, yeah, do we need to spend even more again on the critical national infrastructure? So I kind of, I, I, it would, I want to hedge trying to say anything specific on that because the Defence Secretary said, right, can we avoid the speculation? But I'd highlight that we're already spending more on, on that particular capability area and, and other nations are also spending more. On the Nord Stream pipeline, if Russia is found to have been responsible for causing the leaks, how will the UK respond? We will respond in the way that I think you've seen us respond all the way through this conflict, which is we do so in unison with other nations and we, the military, offer up choices and other parts of government offer up choices because there can be economic responses, there can be diplomatic responses, there can be military responses with additional support to Ukraine. And, and other countries meld their own responses in and that's how you then come back to responding to Russia and defeating Russia when, when it tries to disrupt or it tries to gain the upper hand in a particular direction. And, and what you've seen all the way through this conflict is the heft of all of those nations and the political resolve, the sheer economic power, the sheer military power is phenomenal. That's what we need to draw from. That's part of Russia's predicament that it's trying to tackle and undermine this incredible power and strength that the rest of the world has. Can you say whether or not our underwater infrastructure is protected? Our underwater infrastructure is protected in all kinds of ways. In, it, yeah, some of it is monitoring, some of it is being able to respond, some of it is, is being able to respond in, in, in stronger ways. And, and there's a compendium, there's an acknowledgement and the reason for the additional investment that we might want some particular capabilities that allow us to respond in an even faster and more agile way. And that, that's part of an ongoing debate and I think it's one that several of us have been talking about for several years. And again, I come back to this confidence mm. about the ability of, it's not just the UK, it's the ability of our partners and allies and effectively the West to be able to respond to, to, to these threats, to be able to respond to when those threats emerge into events. And, and because we've got such a range and a power base, that's what allows us to offer choices to government. And that's what you're seeing is, 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 is Western governments being able to calibrate their responses so that we keep our countries safe, we keep our economies working, we support Ukraine, we impose a cost on Russia, we avoid escalation, we maintain international resolve. And that's, that's a delicate balance but you use lots of different levers to enable that to happen. So it's not, and, and I know people want to have, they want to have the simplicity of this is under threat, therefore I'm going to build a fortress around it and that then protects it. And if you look at a lot of what we have and what exists, it isn't quite as simple as that in terms of the fortress that protects it, but there's, there's, a, there's a mass of capabilities and there's a mass of instruments of power that allow you to protect what is valuable to your nation. So it doesn't sound like you're worried that we're exposed. I, I, I'm, so the, the reason I pause is I, all the way through this, I've, I've tried to avoid predictions about when it will end, uh, and, and, and I know it's really dull, and particular predictions on 
it, on, on, on a specific. That specifics can happen. So that you know, it, it may be that a specific has happened ar around that gas pipeline. That doesn't mean that gas doesn't get to European factories and to European homes. And that's the dilemma for Russia when it's trying to attack a whole system and this massive power base, which is, which is, which is the richest and most capable nations on the planet. And, and, and therefore, there are lots and lots of ways that you can respond. But, but it's not, I don't want to deny that particular events can, can always happen. But we should have the confidence that our lives, lives will be safe and secure, our economies will be protected, and we should have the resolve to sometimes we might have to take some short-term pressures, but we, we, you know, we are going to overcome the pressure that Russia is trying to impose on our lives. So you're coming up to nearly a year now as Chief of the Defence Staff. In your time here, you've seen a new Prime Minister, a new monarch and a war break out in Ukraine. Did you ever imagine you'd be faced with such an upheaval when you took up this position? If I'm really honest, I never, I never, I never imagined to be here a few years ago. So I, it's a privilege to be Chief of Defence Staff. We did anticipate that there might be an invasion of Ukraine and part of the preparations for me becoming Chief of Defence Staff was working closely with my predecessor, working closely with government, so that was a smooth handover. And, and, and again, it plays to, it's not just me, it's me and my fellow chiefs and, and their collective support. It's other Whitehall departments, it's politicians and the clarity that they provided all the way through. And then it's these amazing international allies. It's been a, a phenomenal year but I'm fortunate to have amazing men and women that support me. And therefore you see, you see smooth transitions of power, whether that's one prime minister to another or Queen Elizabeth sadly dying and then King Charles becoming our monarch. And my role has been to support that and I've been helped by lots of very, very good people. So it's not what I anticipated. Um, it's a privilege to be here and I'm fortunate to have some amazing people that allow me to try and fulfil my responsibilities as best as possible. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest was produced today by Louisa Wells, Madeline Jury, and on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.